Welcome to California Highways Route by Route. This podcast explores everything about the numbered highways in California, from Route 1 along the coast to US 395 along the Sierras, from Route 8 in the south to Route 139 in the north. Brought to you by the California Highways webpage in Gribble Nation. I'm Daniel Fagan. I do the California Highways page. It's www.cahighways.org. I'm Tom Fear. I'm one of the administrators of GribbleNation.org. If you look at our site, I'm the one usually posting the California stuff. This is episode 1.04, Building the State Highway System, Expanding the System After World War II. Last time on California Highways Route by Route, we saw the state highways authorized in urban areas. Over 6,700 miles of roads were added in 1933 alone. The creation of the legislative route system, signage of the state highways began, creation of additional federal routes, continued adjustments and extensions of highways, passage of the Breed Freeway Act, Defense Highway Act in 1941, and numerous planning surveys were started. In this episode, we see the birth of the freeway system, the Collier Burns Act increasing state funds for the highways, state and federal recommendations for higher capacity systems, growth in cities and urban areas pushing demands for the same, definition of the freeway and expressway system, passage of the 1956 Interstate Highway Act, freeway conversion and construction boom. So let's set the context. As World War II raged on, California had defined a large number of state highways and was slowly constructing and improving them, often like to expressways. State and federal surveys were ongoing regarding the current state adequacy and capacity of the highways. The country was on a verge of a post-war boom as soldiers returned home, wanted the single-family home dream, and didn't mind driving to get it. And automobiles were getting stronger and faster, more reliable, and they needed better roads. The surveys that were started in the late 30s and early 40s had their results starting to come in, and these showed a number of things. The 1941 Rural Highway Needs Survey indicated that the state highway system was underfinanced. There just wasn't enough money for the system they needed. 65% of the mileage didn't meet the current design standards. The projected traffic increases were expected to result in an additional 800 miles of road being classified as inadequate by 1950, and it estimated that it would take upwards of $443 million in 1941 funds to bring the rural system to current standards. There were also a number of recommendations that came out of the 1941 National Interregional Highway Committee. These recommended an expanded interregional highway system of about 39,000 miles that would consist of 29,450 miles of rural highways and 2,123 miles carrying the rural highways into larger cities and 2,347 miles within the limits of the smaller city. It also reserved up to 5,000 miles for loop routes around the city. The report stated that Although in miles, it represents scarcely over 1% of the entire highway and street system, it will probably serve not less than 20% of the total street and highway traffic. It recommended that this interregional highway system be designed to accommodate traffic which would exist 20 years from the date of construction. 1943, the legislator appropriated $12 million for surveys and preparation of plans and specifications in anticipation of a post-war highway construction boom. In 1944, the California Highway Commission recommended a major post-war highway construction program of 145 individual projects at an estimated cost of $80 million. And granted, this is in 1943 dollars, so... We have any inflation fans in our 
listening group, you can probably ballpark estimate what that is. At the federal level, wartime delays led Congress to postpone post-war programs. A post-war bill worked through Congress. It authorized up to $500 million for three years, retained the 50-50 federal and state matching ratio that authorized the use of federal aid funds for up to one-third of the cost of acquiring right away. Funds were earmarked for the federal aid system, secondary routes and extensions of the federal aid system in urban areas. In 1944, the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1944 passed. This act noted that there shall be designated within the continental United States a national system of interstate highways not exceeding 40,000 miles in total extent, so located as to connect by routes as direct as practical the principal metropolitan areas, cities, and industrial centers to serve the national defense and to connect at suitable border points with routes of continental importance in the Dominion of Canada and the Republic of Mexico. These routes of the national system of interstate highways shall be selected by joint action of the state highway departments of each state and the adjoining states provided by the Federal Highway Act of November 9, 1921, for the selection of the federal aid system. All highways or routes not included in the national system of interstate highways is finally approved. If not already included in the federal aid highway system, shall be added to said system without regard to any mileage limitation. So note that in 1944, you actually had an interstate highway system created. They still didn't have all the routes defined. They hadn't even started construction. And most importantly, it didn't establish the final funding ratio that would make the ultimate act a success. In our last episode, we talked about World War II having a significant impact on delaying the progress towards limited access highways. You can kind of see where this is really kind of coming to a head towards the end of the war uh, with acts like this that come out in 1944. In fact, the wartime was planning time. States added or modified a handful of legislative routes during the war years. ASHO, which is the predecessor for ASHTO, Special Committee on Planning and Design Policy, started to develop standards for the location and design of interstate highways. This is kind of where you're seeing standardization starting to come into play. Efforts to identify routes for the interstate system continued well into 1947. The first designations were announced on August 2nd, 1947. Routes included approximately 38,000 miles of the nation's principal highways, including 2,882 miles of urban thoroughfares, mainly routes carrying the interstate systems through cities on main traffic arteries. Routes assigned neither names or numbers. They were simply black lines on a white map showing the state outlines and names of major cities. To fill out the 40,000-mile interstate system, 2,319 miles were reserved for an additional urban loop routes and distributing routes, which would be designated later. I should note that we are going to have an upcoming episode on interstate numbering. And as that episode was being written, it turned into even more of a detailed history of the interstates and, in particular, a detailed history of the interstates in California, chargeable miles, the whole origin of the route system, and there's even a discussion of control cities. So stay tuned. We're going to be covering this all again in even more detail. In 1947, the Collier-Burns Act passed. This act is remarkable. It essentially created the California freeway system by substantially raising the gasoline and other motor vehicle taxes and earmarking the resulting revenues for highway construction. The act was a result of a plan by Governor Earl Warren, who later went on to the Supreme Court. And you'll see that both Governor Warren and his successor, Governor Pat Brown, Jerry Brown's dad, are pretty much 
the main governors driving the whole growth of the freeway system, both through the period we cover here and in the early 60s. It was those two folks who did it. Warren proposed a hike in the gas tax and other vehicle fees with the money to be placed in a trust fund and earmarked for modern road construction. There was lots of opposition. The trucking companies wanted the revenue to come mainly from the gas tax, not a tax on diesel fuel. Utility companies wanted reimbursement for the cost of shifting the wires that were in the path of the new roads. There was a whole north versus south political and a whole rural versus urban split in the legislature and regional suspicion about how the proposed revenue bounty for roads would be divided. We still see problems like this today where the more rural counties don't think they're getting the road spending they deserve. There was also a lot of opposition from the oil companies that didn't want a gasoline tax hike to be the main funding source. This should all sound familiar. Sounds all really familiar to recent times. In late 1947, the legislature passed the Collier Burns Act. This added 67 miles of city streets to the state highway system. It consolidated the county road administration. It required that the state maintain highways in the city, and that's a big deal. This was a significant shift to the previously rural-oriented division of highways. It raised the gasoline and diesel fuel tax to 4.5 cents a gallon, and I forget whether it had built-in further increases, but when we get just recently to SB1, that finally brought the amount of the fuel tax into something that reflected today's dollars. It increased the automobile registration fees from 3 to $6 with a proportionate increase in the weight taxes on trucks, and those numbers have gone up over the years. It created a fund for all highway revenues and motor vehicle tax. It revised the apportionment of revenues from fuel taxes to cities, counties, and the state. It directed gas tax and registration fee revenues towards construction of freeways in urban areas and highways in the rural areas of the state. It divided the state highway construction funds with 55% allocated to the southern half of the state and 45% to the northern half of the state. This is a significant shift from the previous 49% to the south, 51% allocation to the north. And it also provided minimum funding for each county. And if you recall, back in our episode in the 20s, you had almost no spending in the south. So this really shows how much both the influence and population of the southern half of the state grew. It also indicated that highways added by the act would have limited expenditures until a number of identified deficiencies were correct. Now, the influence of this act extended far beyond California because the act was passed at a time that the feds were defining the interstate system. And they originally were going to define the interstate system as a system of toll highways. That is what Roosevelt wanted was a system of toll highways. California testified to Congress on the Collier-Burns Act, and eventually the federal approach mirrored California. They used a gas tax and a highway trust fund. The federal bill became a matching source of money that accelerated and expanded what the state was already planning or already building. So if I recall correctly, uh, basically from what I remember, the 1947 version of kind of what was envisioned for the interstate highway system is very similar to what you see like in Mexico now if the autopistas are deroutes, where the limited access grades are, are told. And if you want an untold route, you got to go through a surface highway. Yeah, it was very much like that. And I think I remember from writing the upcoming episode that the studies at the time were showing that 
basically a toll system would be unfeasible given the amount of mileage and where the miles were. There just wouldn't be enough traffic to fund the roads. Also in 1947, an era of route definition for the future freeway system commenced. So we had a whole batch of routes defined that would be used for the future freeways in 1947, 1949, 1951, 1953, and 1957, taking us all the way up to legislative route 237 by 1956. And this is where you see, especially with the interstate proposals coming in, they weren't putting in the interstate proposals until they had a legislative route to find. So this is where you see the future routes for all the freeways in Los Angeles and all the freeways in the Bay Area being defined, not with exact routings, but with we want a route from point to point here, and it's going to be a distinct legislative route from our old legislative route, which was the surface. And usually there would be a formal adoption that would come through uh, that would more define the routes beyond what was specified in the legislative description. I think that's kind of the big difference people get kind of confused on when they look at like maps of the California state highway system. There's a lot of defined routes out there that never actually had a route adoption. If you actually go and look at the old maps, these are shown with little dots, circular open dots. And People think, oh, well, that meant there was a highway along there since it matches this conventional road. And no, the state never adopted that road. Maybe they planned to at some point in the future, but they hadn't done it. And there really wasn't a specific routing determined at that time. The 1956 Interstate Highway Act created the 40,000-mile National System of Interstate Defense Highways. This was later increased to 41,000 miles. This is the modern interstate system as we know it today. And it's worth noting that the mileage was capped. Had This was the maximum number of miles that could get the federal aid mix of funds they're talking about here. Which was a very big thing uh, that I think a lot of people probably don't remember in the modern sense. But that federal contribution, it really is what drove a lot of the primary interstates you see today. They called them chargeable interstates. Funding was established by $25 billion over a 13-year period with increased funding for primary and secondary highways. The primary source was a $0.03 cent per gallon federal gasoline tax. Funds from this tax, along with funds from other federal highway user fees, were deposited into the Highway Trust Fund. Federal share of interstate construction costs were set at 90% compared to the 50% rate. So you can really see illustrated right there why it was really desirable to have miles in that 41,000. Around this time, the familiar interstate shield and numbers were defined. Note that the numbers were defined at the federal level, like the U.S. routes, without regard to state systems. The interstate highway system was signed in reverse to the U.S. route system to avoid route number duplication. California proposed to have many interstate route numbers changed to avoid duplication with existing U.S. routes assigned state routes. So this is kind of preemptively trying to avoid a later event known as the 1964 state highway renumbering and kind of the death knell of a lot of the more popular U.S. routes within California. Is this why they had proposed some things like is one, two, three, four or something like that? That is. So like in the San Francisco Bay Area, what we know is Interstate 280 today as an example was proposed as Interstate 3. And I-40 was proposed to be renumbered as Interstate 30 to avoid duplication with US-40. If you look at this, you can see why we're running into some trouble today. We had a tax per gallon on gasoline. As we move to more hybrid vehicles, as we move to more electric vehicles, 
They're using the road, but they're not paying this gasoline tax, which is great. You're a consumer. You save a lot of money, but it does not fund the maintenance of the roads. It doesn't give you the funds for the expansion of the roads. And a big concern now, a big question now is, how are we going to fund our roads? There have been proposals for tracking how many miles you put on your vehicle. That has whole issues of equity to the state and privacy issues of their tracking you. You have issues of maybe increasing the registration fee and using that for roads. I don't think the issue is answered right now, but we're going to need to come up with some way to fund the highways that our electric vehicles will be using because the gas tax, if things go the way the legislatures want them to go, the income from that is going to go down just by definition. Yeah, and I think we're going to see one of the first real experiments with this vehicle mileage tax with San Diego County and uh, Sandag's proposed four cent per mile fee for vehicles. Whether that will end up saving people money or not will be interesting. Now is the time in the podcast where you bring in a guest to talk about a subject related to the episode. Today's guest is Jonathan Gifford, who's director of the Center of Transportation Public-Private Partnership Policy, and who's also a professor in the School of Public Policy at George Mason University. His expertise is in the area of transportation and public policy, with a particular focus on transportation and infrastructure finance. He teaches master's classes in transportation policy at the Shar School, and has taught a course on the interstate highway system as a socio-technical system as part of the Mason's Honors in General Education, which examines the history and development of the interstate highway system and the role it has played in the development of modern America. He's going to be talking to us about the Interstate Highway Act, its history, impact, and its failure. Can you introduce yourself and tell us what you did? My name is Jonathan Gifford, and I'm a professor at George Mason University in Virginia in the School of Policy Government, and I teach infrastructure policy and finance and planning and delivery. I direct, for the last couple of years, a center for transportation public-private partnership policy, which is a center that looks at a new delivery mechanism, new to the U.S. uh, anyway, but uh, more widely used around the world. And so we support graduate students and teach and undergraduates as well. Can you summarize the major things that led to the Interstate Highway Act? What brought us to having Interstate Highway? Well, I think you may be familiar, your listeners may be familiar with the 1944 Highway Act, which is the first one that actually used the name of interstate highways. This is at the end of World War II, preparing for post-war. Many were concerned about a post-war slump and return to the depression uh, that we had been in before World War II. So there was a macroeconomic concern that uh, led to some interest in a large investment program to help keep the economy healthy. They, you know, the transportation reason behind it was really a, a period of low investment in highways that during World War II because of restrictions on materials that were devoted to wartime and growing traffic, growing capability of automobiles to go faster, and concern about highway safety. So there was a highway safety motivation. There was a serious congestion concern about growing 
congestion in urban areas in particular. But earlier on, I don't know if you've referred to this in prior programs, but in the 1920s, we had the Pershing map, which talked about a national strategic highway network. And in fact, if you look at the history, you can go all the way back to 1912, where there were proposals for a system of national, a national system of highly improved roads going coast to coast. One of the debates in that period uh, was about farm to market roads, that is going from rural areas into the large urban markets versus intercity routes. And so the interstate highway proposal sort of split the baby and said, okay, we'll have some urban routes and we'll have some more intercity routes. And that became more refined in the 1950s. So congestion, safety, concern about economic post-war conditions from a macroeconomic standpoint. Now, there's a lot of lore about a trip Eisenhower took in 1919 across the country. How impactful was that, really, or is it just more of a nice story that fits the picture? I think it's a bit of both. Certainly, he was active and saw the highways, the Autobahn highways in Germany. And in World War II, he was part of this convoy that went from, I think, from Washington to San Francisco, or maybe it was San Francisco to Washington, and experienced you know, really, really terrible road conditions that crossed across the country. So it certainly had an impact at some level, and his awareness of it was certainly heightened maybe early on by those early experiences. Was was it decisive? I don't think I don't think so. What was the real role of FDR and Eisenhower in this? Or do you think there were more important congressional champions of some of this legislation? I seem to recall Al Gore Sr. was involved and there were some other folks. Well, during his life, FDR was one of the originators of the idea. In the 1930s, or if I can go back further, in the 1920s, the early years of federal aid for highways, uh, there was a very strong emphasis on scientific road building. It was a idea of, you know, the progressive era that we would build roads that were well improved, a limited system of roadways where efficient, well located roadways would, system of roadways would be developed. My personal view although I haven't substantiated it with deep research, is that this wasn't part of the reaction to the sort of pell-mell crazy development of railroads in the 19th century, where it had been driven with a huge amount of public subsidy, but a lot of private investment among the robber barons really extracted uh, huge rents from the federal government in terms of land grants, and it wasn't a careful, systematic network developed. As well as the checkerboard games they played with the land. Exactly. On the uh, railroad. Yeah, absolutely. So I think to the progressives of the early 20th century, this was appalling. It was wasteful. It wasn't scientific. It wasn't driven by actual traffic and need. Instead, it was really bare-knuckled competition between robber barons who were competing not only for traffic, but for subsidy, sort of a rapacious robber baron mode. The whole idea of the federal highway program is that it would be scientific, it would be data-driven, it would be carefully engineered and thought out, it would get away from political determination of where roads would be built to one that was more driven by geography, population, and economic activity, 
and, you know, what they called need. So in the 1930s with the Depression, this sort of ran headlong into what FDR wanted to do, which was to spend as much money as possible to employ people as widely as possible. So there really was sort of a contest between this scientific road building and a federal initiative to get the money out the door into the places where people need a job. A further division was the fact that the federal highway program from 1916 until the 1930s was a strict rural program. There were in some cases urban extensions of rural highways, but it was a rural orient program. City streets, city roads were city issues and not things that the federal government was involved in. But where were the job oppression? They were in the city. So Roosevelt's administration pushed very hard to spend the money in the cities, which led to some real conflicts. So his administration had a lot of influence on the development of urban highway investment with federal support. And then later on, people in the Bureau of Public Roads brought a map, a national map. And he basically took a pencil or a marker and drew you know, three east-west, three north-south routes onto this map that served most of the 50 states or 48 states at that point. So it had a political logic to it, um, and that sort of became the framework. He then charged the Bureau of Public Roads, precursor to today's Federal Highway Administration, do a study of, of toll roads and free roads. Should this be developed as a toll system and building only roads where tolls would support the construction and operating costs of the roadway, or would it be a toll-free system? Now, the progressives in the Bureau of Public Roads were never very enthusiastic about tolls. Again, this went back to sort of a 19th century mentality of tolls being exclusionary, and they wanted the benefits of roads to be available to everyone. So so the toll roads and free roads report, you know, was developed and sent to the White House showing that the benefits of a free roads are far the toll roads. Well, at that point, Roosevelt was under a lot of fiscal pressure and political pressure to reduce the budget. And they said, no, this is the wrong conclusion. You know, we need to focus on a toll road system. So Bureau of Public Roads in a classic and, you know, widely used approach to dealing with political differences, went back and rewrote the executive summary of toll roads and free roads and left the body of port almost untouched. So the technical analysis of the report remained the same. Then we had World War II and things basically went into hiatus for several years. But there was a, a report called Interregional Highways, which tried to look at this question of farm-to-market versus intercity roads. What should be the role of interregional highways? And it was a national Highways Committee, and they came up with a plan that sort of put the baby in. Well, we need a system that can address urban transportation problems. That's where the problems really are. That's where the congestion is most acute. That is where we're seeing a lot of growth. But we will also have interregional highways that will connect the nation together with a network of highways. And that was really the foundation of the 1944 Highway Act, which took on the name Interstate. I have thought, although I don't know if this is really um, supportable, but it's uh, occurred to me that the word interstate itself is a bit of a political compromise because the vast majority of the traffic that uses the interstate highway system then and now is local traffic. Of course, it can accommodate and accepts interstate traffic, long distance, nationally based, but the vast majority, 90 plus percent of the traffic that uses the interstate highways is urban traffic. A lot of it, up until COVID, commuting traffic, and that's returning now as people return to work. Uh, so, we have we see that sort of compromise in uh, in the 1940s. So your question was about the role of FDR. Perhaps we we talked about that enough. The role of 
I've been believe, came in in 1952 was to take conservative sort of Republican posture was we don't want the federal government to be paying for this roadway. And it was there that the Collier Burns example of a trust fund from California really may have been a model for the idea of a federal trust fund in the 1950s. What are some of the lesser known things about the Interstate Highway Act? Well, if you're referring to the 1956 Highway Act, the one that Eisenhower signed, I think most people think of that, the act that created the interstate highway system. As we've said, it really was the term was introduced and the creation of the system itself was in 1944. But what the 1956 act did was to create the Highway Trust Fund, which was a dedicated funding source that could provide the funding for building out this enormous 40,000 miles. And the 56 Act also had a significantly different funding percentage, as I recall. What exactly do you mean by that? I, I think it went from the 44 Act, I want to say, was something on the order of 60-40, and by 56, well, gone to 9-10. Absolutely, and that was very important feature of it. So prior to 1956, the federal share was, in almost all cases, the idea being that this was a federal-state partnership. It wasn't a federal system. Your listeners may know, but uh, it's important to recognize that the federal government owns very few infrastructure assets. The military bases, national parks, and the parkways and roadways within them, but not very much infrastructure. In our country, which is a very decentralized country by design, the state and the localities are the ones who are the asset owners across almost all infrastructure asset classes. And that's certainly true in highways. So the highways that were built starting in 1916, the federal money were owned and maintained and operated by the state. And the feds for designated network of federal aid highways, a subset, not to exceed 7% of that early primary system, was uh, what would then contribute 50% of the capital costs, the uh, maintenance and operating costs to be borne by the state. So it's a state-owned system in most places. Um, the 1956 said the feds will pay for the 90% of the initial cost of the design and construction of the full 40,000 system. So that was a, a massive change. If you go from a state fiscal perspective, you say, okay, well, if I want to add a feature or a mile or a lane mile to my interstate highway system project, the feds will pay 90 cents on the dollar, and I will only have to pay 10 cents on the dollar. So it's a 80% discount from the 50-50 match, if, if you follow the numbers. So it gave the states a huge incentive to try to you know, do as much as they possibly could with the interstate mileage that they were allocating through the designation process of those 44,000-plus miles that were there in the, in the original Act. So that was a very important feature. My view is that it really had an effect on the network structure of the highway transportation system in the United States because ideally in dense areas, you want some very large highways, but you want sort of a dense dendritic network with a lot of alternative paths through it in order to make it robust and resilient disruptions uh, to serve a lot of origins and destinations for dense urban traffic uh, with a lot of people making short trips. This was an interstate system designed to serve interstate traffic by its name, long-distance traffic. So the geometric features of the highways that were funded in the 1956 Act you know, tended to be very good for long-distance intercity traffic, not so good for urban areas for a couple of reasons. One, 
the density of the network structure was relatively sparse. Uh, there were a few miles of urban highways, and you had to get as much service out of those few centerline miles as you possibly could. But also the speed features uh, made it difficult to fit them into already developed dense urban areas. It's much harder to take a four- or six-lane freeway designed to accommodate 50 or 60-mile-an-hour traffic and curve it around an important local community the asset, a park or a church or a historic landmark. And so the community of those highways was quite a bit greater as a result of that. And the state engineers who were often responsible for delivering the systems within the urban areas, in most cases, did not have a lot of experience building urban highways. They had been building rural highways up to that point. So here came a huge slug of money to build an urban highway system, put in the hands of state highway engineers who were well-meaning, but I think in almost all cases, but very little experience with politics and planning and so forth. It was very strongly dominated by engineering and the funding had a lot, you know, had a lot of an impact on that. So you touched upon the fact that we had people not familiar with urban areas designing the routes and that you had limited experience building the routes in urban areas. What would you say some of the other failures of this act were? Well, I don't know that I would say failures. Maybe I would call it limitations or challenges. I think anytime you undertake a huge new enterprise of this sort, there's going to be a learning curve. And I think we learned a lot in those first 20 years or so about building urban highways. Mobility and track service was paramount in those early years. The federal government was very cautious about trying to make good use of the gas taxpayer dollars coming out of the trust fund to get as much mileage, literally, as they could out of that source of funding. And so, you know, they were trying to be economical with where they located the highways to use low-cost land. There was also the dominant theory of the day coming out of progressive circles with the late 1940s and the Housing Act of 1949. That urban renewal was the way to go to try to revitalize and ensure the health city. And so, often the highway program worked in concert with urban renewal programs to remove blighted areas, tenement, low quality housing slum. Well, of course, those places were often occupied by minorities and disadvantaged groups, barrios, ghettos. And the idea was, well, we'll remove this blight and replace it with modern highways and better housing stock, and everyone will be a winner. Well, it didn't work out quite that way. The housing market was full of bias, discrimination at that time. So when people were displaced, they weren't going into a fluid and fully open market housing situation. Instead, there were a lot of legal and social barriers to, to relocating. Also, the tenements were often not owner-occupied. I mean, they almost always were not owner-occupied. They were owned by landlords, and so the landlords were compensated for the taking of their property, but the tenants were given 30 or some days notice to relocate in the early days with no relocation assistance. So, basically, cast out on the streets in 30 to 60 days, no financial aid to help them relocate. That was fixed, you know, by the 1970s, but it was a serious shortcoming of unexpected consequence or unintended consequence of the early of the early interstate highway programs. And we see today in the Infrastructure Act of 2022, the IRJA, there's a billion dollars there to reconnect communities and try to address some of the impact on disadvantaged communities of those early urban highway investments. And we see that out here in California. 
California would be impact on Boyle Heights from Interstate 5 and Oakland from Interstate 980. And although they weren't interstate at times, they probably had some federal aid funding. Things that became interstate, the Harbor Freeway in downtown LA and through Watts, and again, Oakland with Interstate 880, formerly Route 17. Yeah, and I had family in Piedmont, um, California, in the, in the Bay Area. And so, right, completely surrounded by the city of Oakland. And so down in downtown, or not downtown Oakland, but in that area near Piedmont in Oakland, there's a freeway going right through that center, an elevated freeway. And there's a Sunday market that is arrayed around this freeway. And I was walking under an underpass. And here, you know, covered with dust and grime, was a little memorial recognizing this as the Parade Magazine Highway Design Award of the Year from 1962 or 1963. I was stunned. It's like, this was the Highway Design Award of the Year? And this is the last thing to think of as a, as a progressive or positive highway design at the time, which was probably in the early, early 2000s. And, and so I, I went that was back. on Interstate 580. Could well be. You know, it goes right through the middle of this community. And it's a six or eight lane three and so here's the little market, but with trucks and cars and dust and whatnot um, being spewed from the cars that are roaring overhead. And the idea that this could be the paramount ideal of an urban integrated freeway is just stunning to me. But it just shows how our norms about these things have changed. And I encourage my students to try to look at it through the lens of what were they seeing then as opposed to what do we think of this now and to consider their own actions as they move into professional life, how people 50 years from now will view what they consider to be wise, best uh, best practice in their infrastructure system development and design. And are we building, you know, are we building white elephants today that are going to be expensive legacy projects for future generations? Earlier in this episode, we had talked about the Collier Burns Act here in California, and I had opined that uh, its major impact was on the freeway gas tax and influencing the federal legislation. What do you think the influence of what California did in 1947 had on the 56 legislation? Well, I should be clear that I'm not at all expert on this particular act. But we should also recognize, I think, going all the way back to 17 or 1918, Oregon had been collecting a gas tax. They were the first state to adopt a gas tax, and it was before 1920, if I recall correctly. So there had been gas taxes for several decades prior to Collier Burns and prior to the 1906 Interstate Highway Act. And there had actually been quite a bit of political tussle over the disposition of gas in the 1930s during the, the Depression. Coming from the road user groups and from the oil companies, there was a pause, no diversion, no dispersion. So the idea that gas tax revenues should be devoted to highway construction and building, uh, given the robustness of demand for gas consumption, is a popular thing to tax and then use the money to pay for other things. And in the U.S., we pretty much resisted that until, well, these days, you know, we are putting money into the highway budget from the general fund, not taking money out of the highway trust fund for the general fund, although we could have a discussion about the role of public transit and the fact that 
you know, motor fuel taxes go to pay for a large quantities of public transit, and that's a sort of a separate discussion. But in the 1930s, there was the tension over whether this source of revenue could be used to help very fiscally stressed states deal with their budget problems, and there was a political discourse around that issue. Fast forward to the 50s, in the U.S., the Fed, you know, professed allegiance to no dispersion, no diversion, but at the state level, they were terrible violators of it themselves uh, in terms of the accounting for uh, the fiscal revenues of uh, gas taxes. But at the time, in the 1956, when the initial gas tax was put into place by the Interstate Highway Act and the creation of the Highway Trust Fund, I think the Collier Burns Act may have been the first use of the trust fund idea for highway tax revenues, that there actually should be a separate fund that would be a uh, lockbox, as Al Gore, I think, referred to it. And we use trust funds now. And we'll refer to them in, in a number of areas, and it's still used in the highway program or transportation program today for highways and transit. Now, you touched upon this. Were there any other innovative ideas that came into the legislation from other states? Now, that is an interesting question. And nothing is leaping to okay. mind. I think, you know, California was an interesting case. We recently lost a wonderful scholar, Marty Wax, a professor at UCLA, who was Brian Taylor's thesis advisor. Marty has written about the highway plans for Los Angeles, and Brian Taylor has written about the impact of fiscal issues that shaped the development of the Los Angeles road and highway network. I think that focus on a limited system, I think, is one of the hallmarks of the federal program coming out of the progressive era of the 19-teens and 1920s, and that translated into the interstate highway program in important ways, as I've already alluded. But I think the idea of design uh, and the importance of aesthetic design was a feature of California's highways back in the day, where they hired Italian bridge designers to help beautify the roadways. The Royal Second Parkway was an important early parkway where we were looking at the aesthetics of the roadway experience, as well as just the traffic engineering and safety focus, something I think regrettably we've cast aside. The roadside landscaping was a a huge factor in early California highways, but I think it has fallen by the wayside in most most state programs, including, I'm sorry to say, California, I think, for the most part. One of the few exceptions for that is Nevada. Every time I go into the Las Vegas area, NDOT does such a beautiful job with their highways. It's really pretty. We talked about the funding difference between U.S. highways and interstate fields, 50-50 split versus the 90-10. Were there other significant differences between the older U.S. highway system and the interstate system that are worth noting? Yes, I think probably the most important one was the idea of consistent design standards. So this partnership between the federal government and the state and the American Association of State Highway Officials, ASHO, which later became what is today the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials, that had much less of a fixed standard of highways up until 1944 and then with money behind it in 1956. But the 1956 Act placed authority over highway design standards with ASHTO, which is a private nonprofit association of state highway departments. 
And so ASHO came up with a set of highway design standards, and it became a condition of federal interstate funding that highways had to meet the ASHO standards. And that became very important in urban areas. There was an urban standard and a rural standard. The urban standard was slightly more forgiving in terms of design speed was a bit lower, and uh, the ability to deviate was a bit more forgiving in recognition of the fact that these are roadways that are going through areas that already are developed in home to communities and businesses. So I think that adoption of the standards was the source of a lot of conflict between city officials and state officials mediated by the federal government trying to get the cities to accept the higher design standards that were a condition of the interstate highway system. It was much later, but I think the Oriole Seiko, not Oriole Seiko, the 880 that goes from San Francisco down to um, San Jose. Yeah, um, yeah, and I think it's a beautiful, beautiful highway. Um, and Caltrans wanted to use a particular type of guardrail that they found to be aesthetically more appealing, and it didn't fit the actual standard, and the federal government would not approve the reimbursement to the state of installing that guardrail. So they argued and argued, and the story goes that actually they agreed on a Corten steel guardrail that started out with a galvanized steel color that met the standard, but Corten steel then rusts to a more rustic brown that was not as um, dramatically in contrast with the landscape. So they figured out a way to sort of hack the rules and the design standards to get what they want but that's just a microcosm of the many, many, many discussion happened because of those designs. And I think that the other feature, which I think is underappreciated, is this pressure to get your highway capacity out of the interstate centerline miles that you were allocated. And so a lot of pressure on from the state side to expand the size of those highways because the feds were paying 90 cents on the dollar, a restraint from the federal side to try to keep the cost of completing the interstate from going completely astronomical. And and to the neglect of many of the smaller, more boulevard-scale roadways that might have been built in the absence of those particular financial strictures. Since the system was created in 1956, how would you say it's changed? Are the interstates of today really different? Well, the differences are huge. One, the system is essentially built out. We have a national system, including Hawaii and Alaska, which, well, Hawaii in particular, which you know, doesn't even have a road connection to the mainland and couldn't, couldn't have, but they still have an interstate highway, which sort of belies the title of the grant. So I think maybe it's useful to think first about planning and facility delivery for greenfield and new facilities, beginning in the 1960s and then very, very um, substantially in the 1970s and beyond. The consideration of environmental and community impacts expanded enormously. I think in large part because of the interstate highway system. As we began to build out the system, environmental impacts, impacts on parks, impacts on adjacent communities became very evident, and Congress intervened with, with environmental laws to try to mitigate those damages and to broaden the range of factors that went into consideration in deciding the location and the specific design of a highway. So, And they also did it in a particularly American way, which is that 
the, the way to argue is too. So if an interest group, Sierra Club or Environmental Defense, thinks that a decision is wrong, they can sue the decision and often tie projects up in court for many, many, many years. And so our ability to deliver quickly has been diminished significantly by that. But we've also learned to mitigate the impacts of highways, I think, much much more than we would have done so early on. So some of my colleagues will say, well, wasn't it a mistake to delete these roadways from the urban highway plan? And, you know, my response is to say, well, maybe. But if we had built them the way we would have built them back in 1960 or 1965, the impacts could have been terrible. If we were to build them the way we would build them today, then they would provide a huge amount of mobility with much less impact but you can't have it both ways. <laughs> you, you can't sort of go back and apply all of the less that we've learned in the last 50 or 60 years to, and then go and redo the highways that we built at that time. We're beginning to do that. The big dig in Boston is an example of that. So we're much better at mitigating the impact. We've had a very effective national policy of figuring out how to use roadway user charges, gas taxes, and other sorts for other forms of public transit. Advocates have often said that it's a very unbalanced system because highways have a dedicated funding source and transit often does not. And again, if you say the federal rationale for the interstate highway system is to support interstate commerce, well, you don't have a lot of interstate commerce on public transit, so the federal interest in public transit might rationally be said to be less. On the other hand, if you recognize that there's no gate at the interstate entrance that says, is this an interstate trip? Only interstate trips are allowed to be on this interstate system. Well, no, 95% of the traffic is local. So it really does skew decisions when you have one mode of transportation that has a more reliable uh, funding source to support uh, system development and expansion. Now, having said that, I think there is a, you know, a strong appetite for automobility in many communities, and it's a very popular way that many people find useful to get around. And so I don't know that our country would look completely or radically different if we had financed our interstate highway system in a different way. The differences between us and, say, European cities is a question I often get asked is, why do we not have you know, transit systems like Europeans? And it's just, we're, we're a much bigger country. We're a much richer country. We were a country that was not destroyed in World War II and rebuilding. And so we have built a system that serves us as a wealthy country with extremely good mobility and a lot of options that requires a lot of private investment in the form of automobiles and so forth. So for those who are able to participate in them uh, at that level, it's a very good system. It has its real limitations when it comes to those who aren't able to participate at that level. Your discussion of the fact that people would sue for the environmental causes brought to mind Interstate 105, the Century Freeway, here in Los Angeles, one of the last freeways to be built. And that ties to my next question, is one of the things in that lawsuit resulted in transit being built down the middle of the freeway. With the increasing push to transit and transit systems in California, the CTC is emphasizing the notion of complete highways and active transportation. Are there changes coming to the industry system to better accommodate that? I think, yes, at the margin. This system is largely built out, and so 
and its aging needs to be rebuilt. And as we rebuild it, we'll refine where to expand it, how we expand it, and so forth. I don't see a real wholesale closing down of freeways to convert to transit. I mean, transit is on its heels right now with COVID, commuter rail lines and public transit patronage except for buses that, you know, way, way down. Uh, we don't really know what the work picture is going to be. So, you know, I would hesitate to invest billions of dollars in major new fixed rail transit systems to support a pattern of work, pattern of land use that may, you know, may be changing radically and we will end up with stranded investments that aren't serving the society or the community very well. With the changes that are going on in society and so on, we're also seeing a move away from gasoline vehicles. Um, California said that at least new vehicles will have to be electric starting in, in 2035. Other states are likely to do something similar, which will drastically impact the uh, trust fund that comes from gas and diesel taxes. How do you see the notion of how we fund highways and fund vehicle transportation changing as time goes on? States are starting to experiment with per mileage charge. I haven't heard that from the feds and whether it would fly is unknown. What do you think the future holds in highway funding? Well, in the last 30 years, we have not raised the federal gas tax. Um, and so the federal highway program and transit program that the Highway Trust Fund supports has increasingly been paid for by general funds. States, uh, I think, have been much more effective in raising special purpose taxes, either gas taxes or sales taxes or regional sales taxes and so forth, uh, to pay for transportation improvements. It's hard to say how the funding picture is going to change. We've been talking about mileage-based user fees for more than 20 years as a way of shifting away from the gas tax because even before allocation was figuring so large in the view of many as the future of automobiles and roadway transportation, we have been pushing you know mileage standards since the 1970s that mean that on a gallon of gasoline, you can travel a lot further than you used to. So that 19 cents or whatever it is per gallon that you paid for gas in 1991, the federal tax, which would carry a few miles, uh, now is carrying that vehicle considerably further, which means that the roadway usage supported by that gallon of gasoline and the 19 cents associated with it is a lot more. Now we have electrification, and that way it pushes things further. You know, we talked a little bit about toll roads earlier, and, you know, I think one of the huge impacts of the interstate highway system that we haven't talked about so far is that basically killed the growth of a toll road system that was very healthy and emerging in those first 10 years after World War II. Pennsylvania Turnpike opened just before World War II, and then we had a spate of major toll road developments in the eastern United States in that period leading up to 1856. So, you know, those were grandfathered into the interstate highway system in some respects, but, you know, the advantage of a toll system is that it provides an ongoing source of revenue, and we've gotten much more about collecting tolls now with electronic toll collection, as I'm sure your listeners know. So I think the very hard hose hole and the mileage-based user fee is, in a sense, a toll. It's very hard to go do that at a facility level and say that the facility you've been using for the last however long, decades, your whole life, suddenly you're going to have to reach into your pocket and pay a toll in order to access it.
In California, that's been limited pretty much to additional lanes for high-occupancy vehicles who want to pay to go fast. What have been called Lexus lanes, but it's really the high-occupancy toll lane system. Yeah, hot lanes or express toll lanes. And almost all of these lanes were, you know, very underutilized, so I'm not sure they were a very good investment of public resources. But to the extent you can provide some users who wish a choice to pay, taking them out of the general purpose lanes and reducing the traffic there, and you're generating revenue that can be plowed back into either highway improvement or transit, that's a pretty common trajectory for the HOV lanes that we built, you know, began to build a lot of in the 70s and 1980s. But it's unconstitutional in some places to charge a toll on a lane that was free before, even if it once had tolls that were removed. And then you want to go back and reimpose the tolls. It's just from a political standpoint, it's a killer. Mileage-based user fees may have a chance of getting more, the technical term is fiscally equivalent, charging systems where the people who use the system pay for it through some sort of user fee. We'll see. The gas tax was a user fee, which was not perfect, but for many years, for the first 40, 45 years of its existence, it did provide a form of fiscal equivalent where those who were using the highways were paying the cost of at least designing and constructing them, if not doing the operations and maintenance. Now, this just sort of popped into my head. Do you see as we've got a growing transition to smart electric meters that they might come up with the notion of an equivalent of a gas tax for the electricity that is going into the electric vehicle, which could easily be combined with the fueling station collecting it as well when you've got the usage-specific chargers? Well, I think it's going to be complicated, and I think the beauty of the gas tax system was that it's fairly cheap tax to collect. It generated a lot of revenue, and it was fairly invisible to the users, except episodically when maybe the tax was uh, was increased. But most motorists who just bought a gas couldn't tell you how much of the per gallon fee was a gas tax. I think the awareness of that as a, as a taxing mechanism or user fee mechanism are pretty low. Trying to get the institutions all set up for a very decentralized set of power companies and electric vehicle charging companies, I think we're still waiting. Unlikely that the feds are going to lead the way there. It's difficult to figure out a system that's going to work in Manhattan and Montana. And so, again, as is tradition in the United States, probably the innovation is going to come from states. California is a leader in many respects in some things that have worked and you know, some things that may not work so well, but it has a big enough native market that they are able to do pretty ambitious things and see if they work. And they're a big enough part of the market that influence the national automotive and highway market as well. What would you like to tell us about the interstate system that we really didn't touch on in this discussion? Well, I think the interstate highway system was transformative in that it added a capability to the country that we didn't have before that turned out to be extremely popular. Not universally popular. It transformed the motor carrier industry and created the motor carrier industry in a way that most people in the 1940s and 50s didn't anticipate. It supported privacy and security for women in transportation in a way that was not present before. It had a huge impact on civil rights, not only because of its location through barrios and ghettos, which was on balance maybe negative, but also Colin Powell spoke at the 50th 
anniversary of the interstate highway system in 2006 about its transformative effect on him as an African-American man and more broadly the African-American community. He talked about the fact that there was a time when he was working in Washington, D.C. and driving to Quantico Marine Base down I-95, 30 or so miles, where there was no place he'd get off the highway prior to the interstate that would allow a black man to use the bathroom facilities. And that black families had to have the famous Green Book in order to be able to travel to know what kinds of where there would be hotels that they could expect to be able to lodge and be welcome. And the interstate had a transformative effect in that sense as well, because it did knit the country together at a period of time when we were having a lot of other broad social changes that were very important. So I don't know that we have anything on the horizon that's going to be that transformative. You know, we've talked about high-speed rail, but I think you know, it's not a great fit for most markets in our country. Electrification is, uh, I think, an order of magnitude, a smaller change. So I think you have written about the exceptional interstate highway system and that it is really exceptional that we, as a country, agreed to empower a set of experts to build you know, a really massive system that had this transformative impact. And it's, there's not very many examples in our history where we have uh, granted that much power and authority to central, you know, central authority. And I don't know, you know if and when we'll see something that is equally transformative. As you were saying that, I think I have your answer as to what is equally transformative. Built by a central government agency and doing that role of flattening the access to everyone, which is the work done by DARPA on building the Internet and how that has transformed society. That's about almost as equal to the interstates in doing that, and it, maybe that's why we call it the information superhighway. Yeah, well, I would agree that the, you know, the Internet, which did arise out of government research, completely different thing in many respects, but, but it did have a flattening effect. It did allow access. It did ease communications in ways that, that I think no one anticipated. And so, unlike the interstate highway system, you know, the internet doesn't have as big of a physical footprint on the land. And the interstate highway system has a huge footprint on the land in a way that I don't think any other of our systems really do. So, it's a very interesting episode in our history that it occurred. I think we learned a lot in the process and still lots to learn as we move forward. And there were well, lots of lessons learned to help carry us forward. Well, I want to thank you for your time. And my last question is, if people would like to learn more about the research you're currently doing on the interstate, on your work on highways, are there some links that you want to refer them to? Well, I think most of my work of the last you know, 10 or 15 years is accessible through our center's website. And I believe I saw that you had a URL to my uh my and, university and we'll, it, and we'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. And, you know, our center is a little easier to remember, which is just P3, the number three, policy.gmu.edu. And it's probably obvious that I'm somewhat obsessed about this topic. So, you know, happy to uh, talk further and explore it further. But, you know, it's been a pleasure, you know, pleasure talking to you today. Well, thank you very much for your time. Well, that was an interesting interview. Let's pick up with the chronology. In 1957, the freeway and expressway system was created. You have to understand, if you look at the state highway code, there is a large section that defines 
defines the state highways. But then there's separate sections that define a system of freeways and expressways. These are the routes the state wants to be limited access, and they're just listed by number. There's also a section that defines the scenic highways, and there's a section that defines an interregional route system, which is important for some funding. So in 1957, the Division of Highways submitted a plan for a statewide freeway and expressway system that would include both city streets and county roads. And it proposed the construction of 12,241 miles of controlled access highways, in other words, limited access, serving every city with a population greater than 5,000. The criteria for selecting those routes were the system must connect the state's major centers of population. The system must connect the state's primary centers of industrial activity and natural resources with both the centers of labor and materials and major shipping points. In other words, commerce. We want to be able to move goods and get the workers to the business. The system must provide access to important military installations and defense activities, which is why it's built to shipyards and things like that. The system must provide access to major recreational regions, national parks and monuments, and state beaches and parks, lakes, hunting and fishing areas, and to state institutions. This is why you often saw things defined in the freeway expressway system that would go to national parks or to state hospitals, even though they were never actually built up as freeways. The system must connect as many seats as county government as is economically feasible. The system must provide for continuity of travel into, through, and around urban areas from rural freeway approaches, in other words, connecting the cities. The system must provide for large traffic movements between population and industry centers within urban areas. The system must provide the necessary capacity within the traffic corridor. The system must connect with major highways of adjacent states. And in general, that's true. If you look at it, there are a few routes that either did connect to um, other state highways or that really peter out at the border. And usually those are up in the northern, more rural parts of the states. What's coming to mind is like 299, which I think connected to 8A, but I'm not even sure that was part of the freeway and expressway system. And the system must constitute an integrated system with a minimum of stubs or spurs to permit general traffic circulation. Something I thought would be interesting kind of to segue into is the definitions of freeways and expressways. In California and much of the West Coast, we know this kind of differently than what you would see like in the Midwest or the East Coast. So by expressway, what we're referring to is not a completely limited access control road, meaning that like you have access to side roads from the surface road, but basically the idea is that there's some sort of boundary between like homes or business. And a freeway would basically be the limited access highway, which would be analogous to like an interstate highway out east. An expressway basically is synonymous with freeway. So if you were to look in California at what are examples of expressways, you have some really good examples of that along um, US 101 along the coast, especially in the central coast area between like King City and Salinas and that area. Also, if you are familiar with Los Angeles, the uh, 90, when it hits Culver, sort of becomes a very limited expressway between there and Marina del Rey. And one that's my favorite, uh, given that I drive it frequently, would be an example of a two-lane expressway. It would be Route 41 south of Fresno between when it bottlenecks between four lanes to an earlier constructed, of two, constructed segment of two lanes and comes back out to a four-lane segment in Kings County. So it's not necessarily four lanes, the expressways. They can be two. And you want to contrast that with the freeway. A freeway is the highway 
that is explicitly limited access. So the only way to get onto or off of the freeway is at interchanges. Any other connection to the freeway is limited. It, it cannot occur. And in fact, the California Transportation Commission has to approve any connection to a freeway. Although I believe they actually have to approve any connection to any state highway. I remember I used to work at some place that was had an office on Olympic Boulevard. And when they built driveways, they had to get approval because Olympic at that time was Route 26. Yeah, and just because something's a freeway doesn't mean it's set to a certain number of lanes. We do have examples in California that what they call Super 2 freeways, like Route 108 in Sonora, Route 255 in Eureka, where they are freeways where you have to access them via interchange, but they are two-lane. And because it's called a freeway doesn't mean that it's free. It means it's free-flowing because we have toll roads in the state, such as the Orange County toll roads, 241, 261, that are freeways but are tolled and limited access to people who pay the toll. During 1959, the legislature approved the freeway and expressway system. They also made the gas tax permanent. Freeway construction continued strong. 1957 through 1959 saw numerous legislative routes clarified and lots of routes for future freeways added, bringing us up to legislative route 290. But there's a catch to the freeway and expressway legislation. It is the purpose of the legislature in extending lengths of routes presently in the state highway system and in adding routes to the state highway system. In this act, that additional mileage may be incorporated into the state highway system in order that said mileage may become part of the California and expressway system. There shall be no expenditures made on extensions of state highways added by this act or on any state highways added by this act other than planning, design, maintenance, right-of-way acquisition, and right-of-way clearance until the 1963-64 fiscal year. So in other words, routes could be added to the system, but construction was delayed until the 1963-64 fiscal year. Which I believe was the start of Pat Brown's second term? I believe so. Okay. So this, this is a very common congressional trick. You know, delay the expensive part until uh, the next administration. Now, in 1961... California established the Highway Transportation Agency. This included the Department of Public Works, which included the Division of Highways, the Department of Motor Vehicles, and the California Highway Patrol. As we enter the early 1960s, routes are signed with both interstate and U.S. route state route numbers. So a big myth about a lot of the U.S. routes that were decommissioned in California is that they weren't on the interstates. A lot of them were. An uh, example I could think of off the top of my head would be U.S. Route 66 from Barstow to Ludlow, the duplication with Interstate 40. And this duplication was leading to problems. So, for example, we had Interstate 480 and U.S. 80. This led to increasingly confusing multiplexes. Uh, there's photos of downtown Los Angeles where you have just a crazy amount of mount multiplexes running through downtown onto the Pasadena Freeway or the Santa Ana Freeway or the San Bernardino Freeway. Uh, just looking at the old sign, this is some of the older photos in the California Highways and Public Works. Even to me, it's kind of hard to figure out sometimes what's going on. And you had odd directional signage, I recall. What is the picture in the four-level interchange of it directing US-1 is going this direction and 66 and 6 and... I forget whether it had any signage for five at that point, but it was really confusing. I forget what year 99 dropped off of that, but even 99 was there for a while, too. A small number of additional routes were being defined. The system is getting unwieldy and confusing with some examples. Some use legislative route numbers. 
even though they only show up on maps and not, not actually field signs. Some use state sign route numbers. Interstate and U.S. route duplication, which I gave an example already with I-40 and U.S. 66. Some good examples of that, I recall some maps of the valley, San Fernando Valley, from the early 1960s, where you see Lancashire signed as Route 157. It was never Route 157. It was legislative Route 157 until the 170 was completed. But the map makers didn't understand this, and they would sign them with these routes. And I think there were some other spots where Tom has probably seen maps from the early 1960s where they're just putting the legislative route numbers on the routes as if that's what was signed. Yeah, so the Gaucho is pretty infamous from that, from what I recall, especially like in their 1950s era's maps. About the only real accurate map you were going to get was directly from the California Highway Commission during that time period. And this did not help the driving public. Now, this is a good space to stop because this confusion leads to what we're going to see in the next episode, which was this great renumbering, this great reorganization of the highway numbers on the roads. And a lot of states have done these renumbering. And when we get to the looking at the state highway numbering in a later episode, it's interesting to contrast how California's approach to numbering highways differs from what some other states have done. I always like, just for the fun of it, to ask, for any state, where is Route 1? Don't always have them. We'll also see the continued adjustment and expansion of the system until, in the late 1960s, things change. We start seeing freeway revolts and opposition to freeways. And this actually kills a number of freeways. We start seeing the environmental protection legislation come in and the California Environmental Quality Act, which really changes how freeways are built. We see the first iteration of Governor Jerry Brown, who did not at least encourage construction of highways. And in some ways, the director of Caltrans at that time was almost a little bit hostile to highways. And we see the basic completion of the freeway system. For more information, visit the chronology section over on cahighways.org. Most of the Gribble Nation blogs touch on the early days of the state highway system up to the emergency interstate system. And something we've been hitting on lately is the AASHTO route log database, where we're actually pulling specific scans showing the chronology, a lot of the modern highways you see today. Links to relevant information on the page at caroutebyroute.org. Details for specific routes and specific route pages on cahighways.org and gribblenation.org. As always, information on the episode is available on our website, caroutebyroute.org, where you can leave us comments on the episode. The episode is also available on our anchor.fm home, anchor.fm slash caroutebyroute. Join us as we continue to explore California highways route by route. This episode was written by Daniel Fagan and Tom Fear, edited and produced by Daniel Fagan. Our opening theme is I Like to Be by the Seaside by John H. Leverkind. Do you have an opening theme you think might be good for our show and is either in the public domain or you're willing to let us use? Contact me at daniel at caroutbyroute.org if you do. Episodes are recorded using freeconferencecall.com. This podcast is a product of California Highways at cahighways.org and Gribble Nation at gribblenation.org. If you might be interested in becoming a supporter of the podcast once we get that established, please contact me at daniel at caroutbyroute.org. Tom, do you have any closing thoughts about this particular era that we just discussed? This is a huge transitional period uh, in the state highway system in California, and really it leads into what you see today and a lot of the things that people probably 
in retrospect, might have done a little bit differently with some of the variations of U.S. routes and their importance and some of the signed state routes. I really think it's worth it for people that are interested in the California state highway system to really look at the emergence of the freeway corridors, the interstate system, because there's a whole lot of different ways it could have played out than what we got today. Uh, but really, you need to dig in deep to really kind of get the full background, the full picture on what was going on. But it's a really fascinating place to look. I agree. The I, I think one of the most interesting periods is looking at the 1950s and the maps that show the growth of the highway system from about 1950 through 63. And you really see the growth and the construction of the freeways as they just sort of snake out and grow. And you see the system completed after 64, but the real backbone of the system is created around that time. And if you think about it now, that means our current highways are exceptionally old, okay? They're older than either of the folks doing this pot. They're on the order of 75 years old. That's how long this concrete has been there. And we may be having some big maintenance stuff coming up as time goes on with that age. And with that, we will see you on the next episode. I want to encourage folks to go back and look at our back catalog. We have a number of earlier episodes in this series, and not all of them have had the same number of listens. So if you have not heard earlier episodes, you can go to the website and listen to back episodes.